0: Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. Verdesian sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Verdesian for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. This week's edition of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we all thrill to No-Till. Or maybe we're all No-Till Tigers. Whatever you do, remember to farm ugly. These are a few of the slogans and gimmicks used by this week's guest, Dick Fell, during the early days of no-till farming in the early 1970s. Fell worked at Chevron to promote and develop a then-little-known chemical by the name of Paraquat, a herbicide that helped move no-tilling from a loose collection of bottom-line-minded innovators to a national soil health movement. Fell talks with no-till farmer publisher Frank Lesseter about these early days the prospect of his retirement years, the tightening regulations for chemicals like atrazine and glyphosate, and more.
1: Tell me, Dick, about the first time you ever got involved with No-Till.
2: When it goes back in actuality, it was a little bit of uh, commercial. We had the product that um, did many things, but one of the things it did is it clean the soil or ground so that you didn't have to uh till it so we created what was called no-till because disking and plowing were wrecking the lands and plus using gas and and polluting the environment so our new concept was no-till which did away with those things and made it easier for farmers to do the job in a cleaner more environmentally sound way
1: right so you're talking about paraquat and you were at chevron at the time yes sir
2: i i avoided the word because i wasn't sure how that
1: (laughs) no that's (laughs) fine we'll talk about
2: it and then it changed over to gamaxel
1: right right so what what year would you guess you got involved in this
2: it would been around 70 i'm trying to think uh Probably around 74 to
1: 76. Okay, what did you do before that time?
2: Um, I was in the petroleum business.
1: Okay, where did you grow up? Where was home for you?
2: Well, I started out in the Bay Area, hmm. uh, then uh, went uh, to Southern California, uh, then to the nation, then to the world.
1: All right, so what made you change from the oil business to the herbicide business?
2: There was a guy, I'm um, just trying to think of his name, uh, that came to me and uh, sold me that they needed me more than the petroleum. <laughs>
1: right. And so, he
2: convinced me to come over uh, to Ortho.
1: Okay. So when you were in the oil business, it was with Chevron, too, right? Yes. Okay. So, what happened along 72? I mean, uh, no till, we started no till farmer in 1972 and there were about 3.2 million acres and it got, it got a little bigger every year and then you came along in maybe 73, 74. Tell me about some of those early days and what was happening with no till and how, how tough a sell it was to farmers.
2: Well, it, um, it was exciting because I, I was actually out on the ground with the farmers and sure. uh, donating product and doing sample plots with the university, getting them involved and everything else. And then I, I with some friends, uh, Chicky was telling me I sat at a table in a room and was trying to come up with $6,000, but we we came up with the idea CTIC, the sure. Conservation Technology Information Center.
1: I was there at the meeting which was formed at, uh, at airport. Canadian, I... Dickie. Yep, <laughs> airport, air, airport near O'Hare. Yeah. So then, what happened?
2: Well, then it started growing, and we uh, started getting more and more people involved, like you and uh, Lynn Henderson, and uh, on and on and on. Uh, and the universities picked up on it. Um, the, uh, the farm the farm part of the uh, university here in Fresno uh, the ag division and that oh, okay
1: and extension started, right.
2: really started multiplying because of the concept and what it meant to the land and, and to America
1: yeah um, it's been a tough sell in California for no-till I mean you got so many specialized crops and people still think you got to make a lot of trips no-tills caught on a lot of places but it's hasn't done all that well in california although it's doing some right
2: uh frank you're right the uh, that's the sad thing about it it was the hardest state of all the states to convert and yeah. because of the multiple crops and the multiple cropping within a season i where we really lucked out was cotton because uh-huh. cotton was a once-a-year crop and it lent itself to no-till
1: yeah well, when you were working with these universities, you go back into the 70s, and it seems to me like the agronomists weren't very excited about no-till, and some of the states that made real progress, it was because of the ag engineers, like in Iowa and Paul Yassa and Nebraska and some other places. It seems to me the ag engineers caught on faster than the agronomists did.
2: Yes, that's true. And those states and places you mentioned were the leaders more than California.
1: Yeah. Well, Pennsylvania was another one. There were some agronomists there that got on early. And so what, what were some of the major, I mean, you, you traveled the United States in those days. Did you, you weren't home very much, were you promoting no-till?
2: <laughs> yes. And, uh, and actually uh, I lived in Pennsylvania for a while and I lived okay. in West Virginia and, uh, I was able to get them, uh, you know, excited about it. And, uh, uh, some of the mid-states, the uh, Dakotas and uh, Carolinas and Nebraskas, they were a little harder, but once they got going and saw the the value in it, they started leading. Texas was a tough one, and, and the whole South was tough.
1: Right. Well, we've made great accomplishments in no-till. Um, I, I mentioned in 72, we think we had about 3.2 million acres, and today it's close to maybe 110 million acres, so... Wow. Progress has definitely been made.
2: Well, you remember our uh, slogan, Frank, is farm ugly.
1: Yeah, I want you to explain that and how you came up with that.
2: Well, no-till was, you know, as you say, when they plowed in disc, which farmers liked to see their field, you know, that they sure. had this beautiful, clean field. And when we started spraying, the, sometimes just spraying the centers and weeds were in the furrows, it was really ugly, so we came up with the slogan that "farm ugly" uh, is the way to farm, and it caught on. And uh, of course, a lot of jokes and fun with it.
1: What did uh, what did uh, farmers that weren't no-tilling we think of the farm ugly program?
2: They, you know, they they weren't uh, conversant uh, against it or for it. Um, mm-hmm. The term uh, the term was every time they told a guy, he still had to smile. Yeah. You know, thinking of farm ugly. And it always brought a smile on a farmer's face, even though he may have thought the opposite. Sure. So it it, it had a good ring to it.
1: Yeah. Right. No, it's short, two words, short and sweet. Got the message yeah. across.
2: And then, you know, we used to say, it's a thrill to no-till. <laughs> right. And make a cheer out of it. But another one, in no-till, we had Save Soil, Toil, and Oil, and that was a slogan that went along with our various ad campaigns.
1: Yeah, right.
2: And then there was another thing we had, what was called the No-Till Tigers, and it was a group of people, that uh, farmers, that we called No-Till Tigers. But going with that, my wife dressed up as a tiger, and I carried her on my shoulders, when we went to some of the no-till field demonstrations and praised the no-till tigers.
1: Well, I remember back in the early days that there were not a lot of no-tillers around. I had some farmers tell me that when the landlord came into their driveway and said, let's go look at our no-till fields today, and he said if it was before the 4th of July, we were better off going fishing and not letting them see those fields. But after the 4th of July, then you could look at the fields, and they looked a hell of a lot better than they had looked in May or June.
2: (laughs) That's true. That's really true.
1: So what do you you think were the main reasons we got no-till sold to farmers?
2: I think the concept of not tilling, and the things that were associated with tilling made sense to farmers. Otherwise, the cost of the tractors and the plows and the discs and the fuel sure. and the fact that they could use a herbicide and eliminate all that made such a big difference. Plus, the commercial applicator side of the business started growing like mad because mm-hmm. it was giving them land to spray and treat that they hadn't had before. Yeah. So you had two forces working in that direction.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting how that has changed because today, well, well, first of all, we've got farmers with a lot more acres, but we got a lot of people who bought their own self-propelled sprayers because they want when they want to spray, they weren't always able to get the commercial guy to do it that day because he was busy with something else. And then what's happening if these big self-propelled sprayers, a guy gets one and say he's got 2,000 acres, and he'll put six or 7,000 acres on that sprayer during the year because he'll go back and put on fungicides or insecticides or even fertilizer later in the year. So a lot of big acreage farmers are running their own self-propelled sprayers these days.
2: Yeah, I see uh, those around here, and you're absolutely right, uh, and the technology improved so much and yeah some of them are almost automated
1: Mm -hmm. so no-till with chevron you go back and you go back a long time and some you know there were some early pioneers with chevron like in maryland and delaware which it really caught on there but they didn't have any huge acreage but uh even today we're we're only about a third of the way to no-tilling all our row crops but uh we get a lot of people, you ask them what's the value of no-till, and they'll say, well, it's $100 an acre versus using more tillage. And uh, our guys today are still innovators. They're willing to try anything new. That's right,
2: yes. it uh, It's a changed uh, agricultural uh, view and uh, equipment, and the technology has uh, improved significantly, too.
1: Yeah, our average uh, our average acreage for our no-till farmer readers is about 1,400 acres. And uh, I just recently had somebody from California tell me the diesel price was, I think, $7.50 an acre. So I calculated if you had this 1,300 acres and you were no-tilling and your neighbor was still moldboard plowing, he'd be spending an extra $32,000 this year just on diesel fuel. Wow, Frank, you got a selling point there. Wow. Exactly. And then, you know, you got less machinery. And, uh, uh, used to be, how did, how did you fight the idea that if you no till, you're going to have to plow every four or five years?
2: Well, was, uh, yeah, I, you know, that that's probably true. Uh, the one thing that, that, the herbicide, the particular herbicide, now there's some that, that yes, that's part of it, uh, that you didn't need to plow because it was so fixed to the soil particle. But now mm-hmm. they've added residual herbicides that, yes, they better plow and disc and turn on under.
1: Yeah, but uh, my philosophy always was that uh, the guy says, I think I'll have to plow in four or five years. And I said, well, go ahead, see what happens. But after four or five years, most of them never plowed. They, did, yeah. they they realized after they tried it they didn't have to. So wh- one of the big things that happened that made no till go was from one of your competitors Monsanto came out with Roundup. There were some limitations of what Paraquat could do that Roundup kind of helped help move the no till movement around, along, right?
2: Yes, and uh, the, we then we got together with Monsanto. Uh, and Zeneca and uh, all the other companies uh, that were formed uh, because of that, they switched over to the combination of the product uh, and also uh, the speed of one versus the speed of the other uh, became less important.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the benefits of glyphosate was the translocation to the roots. But she didn't yes. have paraquat. So.
0: We'll come back to Dick Fell and Frank Lesseter in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Verdesian, for supporting today's podcast. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag dealer today about Verdesian products. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesnar with the little known no-till farmer fact.
1: Well, as we're talking today with Dick Fell about the history of no-till, I thought it would be interesting to go back and look at some things that we have done in the past. And one of the issues I looked at was in the September no-till farmer issue of 1980. And we kind of think about cover crops maybe being new, but they're certainly not. They've been used for many decades by growers to remember. And back in that issue, we talked about uh, Ralph Rasnick, who has fertilizer applied on his corn stalks in the fall. He has a custom applicator mixed rye with the nutrients. And the Reiner, Virginia farmer was applying 40 pounds per acre of nitrogen along with potash and phosphorus based on soil test results. And to work the Ryan fertilizer into the ground, he ran a disc over 12 inch tall corn stubble. So anyone that thinks that cover crops are new in the last few years or last decade, we've been using them for many years. And in fact, when I was growing up on a farm in Michigan in the early 1950s, my dad was uh, seeding cover crops at that time. And now we'll get back to the
0: conversation.
1: Some of the interesting stories you can recall from working with people
2: well the the most the most difficult was uh, "I don't believe it," and then I believe it uh,
1: uh-huh.
2: that uh, you would tell them and explain and and uh, they would think about it and give it a, and usually a small acreage, and then they realize and convert it over to every acre that they could because of the economics and time that was involved in the, in the new no-till. Uh, regime.
1: Yeah. Well, they used to talk about uh, the guy that was going to try it wasn't going to try it up by the highway. He was going to put it back behind in the back 40 someplace so he didn't get ridiculed.
2: You got good memory, Frank. That <laughs> just happened a lot. Yeah. Because uh, of Farm Ugly.
1: <laughs> right. Did you come up with the Farm Ugly slogan or somebody else or what?
2: No. Uh, I- I I guess I'm credited with it uh, but I think uh that uh as I recall a farmer's the one that that actually should get credit for it. Yeah. What Chicky? Oh, their wives.
1: There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Listen to a woman.
1: Right. Well, right. she
2: was a big part of my life at that time and a lot of the meetings and stuff
1: Chicky attended. Right. No, I remember I remember being at meetings where both of you were there. Yeah. So, what kept Noto from catching on faster in the early days
2: the 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 most difficult thing was of course getting the word out in the technology, and as you had mentioned, the universities were not behind it right off and then
1: mm-hmm.
2: we had some pioneers that saw the value in it and then started promoting it and once uh the university system started promoting it then it went really uh bonkers
1: right well 2022 is a big year for everybody it's the 60th anniversary of the first no-till on the harry young field in uh earned in kentucky in western kentucky it's the fiftieth anniversary year of our no till farmer publication, and it's the thirtieth anniversary of our national no tillage conference so we just had our thirtieth one back in january and it's in thirty years this, it's brought in as many as fourteen hundred farmers and the mo- the least we ever had was about seven hundred farmers so we've been we've done very well with this and
2: uh yeah, I been, wanted uh, to come, but economically uh yeah. I had to choose not to make it. I had an imitation and everything, several of them.
1: Sure, uh, sure. But
2: I, I didn't make it.
1: Right. Well, you know, we we still haven't worked out all the problems with no-till. It, it, even right now with the Biden administration, they're finally okay. figuring out a way that we can have crop insurance if you plant a cover crop and then put in corner soybeans. I mean, for several years here, they wouldn't... Uh, they they said the first crop is cover crops. That's what we should insure, and they wouldn't insure the corn or soybeans. Well, they finally figured out that's not the way to go. But uh, they've made some changes, and then Biden is right now. Is, and the USDA is big on trying to promote double cropping, more soybeans, so we can feed the world.
2: Well, that, that in in one sense it makes sense to, if you can double crop.
1: Right. But that
2: that too no till lends itself to double cropping too.
1: Right. Well, that's that's it. And, uh, wheat or barley, or followed by soybeans, or uh, it was just interesting. One of our, our, our one of our editors was saying yesterday that um, they had we had talked to a farmer I think in Iowa who had seeded a cereal rye cover crop last fall, and then he was going to put in corn or soybeans this spring, and normally he would go in and kill that cover crop either with chemicals or roll it or crimp it. Well, the, uh, the soybeans came up okay. He would, he would roll it or crimp it or treat it with chemicals maybe a week after he planted his soybeans. Well, the interesting thing that happened here is it really got wet, and he couldn't go in there and uh, either spray or crimp the, cover, the rye cover crop. So what's happening now, the soybeans are coming fine, but all of a sudden uh, he's going to harvest this rye as seed and either sell the seed to neighbors or use it as his own cover crop. So what he was going to terminate, because of the weather, he's got a seed crop coming off there. So it's, it's crazy what some of these guys are doing.
2: Can he still harvest the, the rye and, and the beans will come
1: in? Yep. Yep, he's going to have he's going to have a double crop in at uh and he, he
2: lucked out there, yeah.
1: Yeah, he started out he thought he was going to have a cover crop in soybeans and now he's got a rye cash crop in soybeans. Oh, that's great. So you told me the other day that you've kind of got your garage set up as a no-till shrine. <laughs> well,
2: I I took one of my pictures down, uh I don't know who drew it of me with uh, my coat on and all the little slogans and sitting over here on the table on the, all of the people that signed it uh, that were involved in those days. I, I can't read all the signatures, but uh, yes, and I, I've got uh, in the backside of the garage <laughs> uh, my ego. I put the pictures up as a memory.
1: Yeah. Well, I think as far as Noto was uh, found, you could find nobody that wasn't more enthusiastic about it than you were
2: <laughs> i well I think you're I, I have to agree with you. I should have <laughs> got carried away, but it was it had a lot to do with my livelihood
1: too, <laughs> yeah, right. Did you ever think it wasn't going to work?
2: No, because some of the um experiment stations told me that it's the answer yeah.
1: mm-hmm. so let's go back to no till cotton for a while. You said there there was a crop that uh really fit uh no-till tell me tell me why you were high on no-till cotton
2: well in in the old days of course they they did fallow ground with cotton and they got only one crop off it and the no-till enabled them to to plant a spring crop and then come back with cotton so they got to double crop which they couldn't they weren't doing before
1: okay so what crop would they put in ahead of cotton
2: a lot of times here in the West, it was a grain. Alfalfa, sometimes uh, not common with alfalfa, more with grains, barley, wheat, oats. Uh, uh, alfalfa uh, would come back even with a spray down. So it was, it was basically grain uh, and then come in later, uh, June, July, and plant the cotton and yeah. take it off in September and October.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that brings up another point because back in the seventies and early days we were we were um no tilling corn particularly in into sod there were a lot of uh, we we didn't start with a corn soybean rotation. It seemed to me that a lot of these guys were planting into sod that pretty much true in the early days
2: Yes, I think uh n- not necessarily sod too, but just uh fallow ground, yeah. And, and uh, instead of having to come in the disc and plow and, and really work it, they just sprayed off and planted into the fallow ground.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things I always remember at our first no-till conference in 1993, we had a speaker from South Dakota, Dwayne Beck. And he got up and he said, you guys in Ohio, no-till to get rid of the water. And in South Dakota, we no-till to keep every drop that falls on the ground. and there was truth in that
2: yes
1: (laughs) so what are you doing in retirement
2: well basically uh i'm 87 now frank and um, i uh i have a little community church over here that has a, a lake and a a uh, pond and uh, uh, 15 acres, and I'm enjoying the heck out of. And I am spraying weeds. I do the uh, uh, banks of the of the pond or the sure. of the lake, and then I do the stream uh, and the parking lot. And, and then I have a fallow where I planted some trees uh, that I'm uh, sh- keeping sprayed off too. So. I'm still involved uh, from that standpoint uh, um but that that's about the extent of it now I'm uh, calmed down.
1: <laughs> Doing any traveling?
2: Yes, we uh just got back from Mexico a month in Mexico, but we we have we own property in Cabo San Lucas. Uh-huh. And uh, it's called Club Cascadas. and we have a month that we own the the villas. And, uh, so we go down there and, and the thing about it is we've been doing it for 30 years. So as we meet the old friend, it's home away from home.
1: Sure. Sure. Okay. And
2: it's a, a big part of our life. And then we go over to Cayucas uh, two times a year at the beach. And, uh, that's about the extent otherwise, uh, here, I do have a son that's a school bus driver that lives with us and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and got a granddaughter and a grandson, uh, that live close by. I have 11 great-grandchildren, five grandchildren. Ooh, wow! Uh, so we've got a lot of people in our lives.
1: Well, we've got uh, four kids. We've got uh, 14 grandkids, but we don't have any great-grandchildren yet. We're old enough to have it, but we've we've only got one of our grandchildren married off. So
2: we're, <laughs> well, we're way behind more, you. Yeah, you got more grandchildren.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, you've got a good family too. That's important.
1: Right. No, that's very important. and uh, We try to go to Florida for a month in uh, March at Sanibel Island and Fort Myers, so we get up. And where's that, Florida? Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, side of the w- world, Florida's the key.
1: Yeah, right. So you worked a lot with John Bradley, who was at the Milan Experiment Station. He he speaks very highly of you. Um,
2: John was a champion Yeah. and a t- good friend.
1: Yeah, then he left and went to Monsanto. He worked on no-till cotton for quite a while.
2: Yeah, you're bringing up good names. Jerry (laughs) Quinn, I'm trying to think of some of the others, Uh, Lynn Henderson. Um, There's a whole bunch of them.
1: Yeah, we're getting old.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't know about you. I think you said something about it, but uh, I do treadmill bicycle weights and uh, exercises every day uh, trying to – To do, you know, in diet, we have a a minimal breakfast, uh, salad for lunch, and then we have fruit for dinner, and uh, we're taking care of ourselves.
1: God, you will live forever on that program.
2: Well, and uh, I'm 170 pounds, uh, 5'11 and a half uh, if I stand up straight, and uh, I I really feel great, too. 30-inch waist, and uh, I'm hanging in there, man.
1: Well, you're making me feel bad because you're much better shape and condition than I am. So, but I do go to the gym a couple times a week. And well, that's to, what you were
2: saying, yeah. yeah
1: try to walk. We, it we had
2: it, you know. The thing about it, we had a gym just two blocks away, or it was a little longer than that, but and it closed and moved, and that really kind of we really missed it because even though it had the same things we have in the garage, you had people there and and. Uh, activities and things that
1: we don't have now. Right. Well, it's interesting looking at no-till, what we've done in the U.S., and then you you look at what they've done in Western Canada, and Western Canada is way ahead of us on the percent of land that's no-tilled. They've been in dry land conditions. They've been big on wheat and canola and sunflowers and other pulse crops, but uh, you know, no-till is kind of just an old-fashioned idea to them.
2: But, you know, and, and that's that's the heartwarming part of uh, that memory is that uh, coming up with uh, that concept uh, really made a difference in agriculture. And, uh, and then all the people that got on the bandwagon so enthusiastically really made life worthwhile.
1: Yeah, right. What have I missed talking to you about and reminiscing about? with no tone.
2: well it's great to hear your voice again and i thank you for thinking of me and uh, hopefully sometime we can get together
1: we're getting lots of flack this these days about glyphosate or roundup and there, there's people who'd like to see us ban it and i think it uh well, and we got a serious thing going on right now with atrazine. I mean, people are saying the EPA needs to rewrite the rules on atrazine. And atrazine has been around since day one of no tone Yeah,
2: it was in the early days. That was the the fellow competitor, and uh, and and it caused the two problems because the atrazine was residual, yeah. and the paraquat was uh, gone and bound yeah. by the soil. So, but. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a shame that, uh, and and I don't think the uh, government and the, and the organizations today understand agriculture like they did in the past.
1: Right. Well, there's no doubt about that. Uh, the, the USDA budget today is about 85 percent school lunch programs and nutrition, so. Uh, in that the
2: truth, Yeah, we right. got all the food gooders.
1: There aren't many farmers left in Congress anymore. But going back to uh, Roundup, if it, if it did get cut back or reduced, yeah. I, I think we would have to come back and start using more para, paraquadrigramoxin.
2: Yeah, well, the, you know, the thing about it is is that Roundup's big business is homeowners now.
1: Yeah, and they're going to quit doing that. Oh, all uh, Bayer has yeah, said. Yeah, I've got but, a, I, I've, uh,
2: got, a uh, couple, uh, got one in my truck and one outside uh, in the back uh, with the little hand sprayer all, right on the uh, can or the it's yeah, black
1: bottle. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm going to let you go. This was great. Uh, it's fascinating. I appreciate appreciate all you did over the years for No-Till, and you you played a big part in what's going on today.
2: So. Well, thank you so much. You made my made my year.
0: That was Frank Lesseter and Dick Fell talking about saving soil, toil, and oil. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lesseter one more
1: time. When we talk about increasing yields, particularly with corn, the question is how much farther we can go. We know we've had uh, corn yields in contests of over 600 bushels per acre, but that's not what we're seeing across the uh, across the country today but regardless of that we're going to see higher and higher yields and one of the ways to do this is going to be with narrower rows the harry stein family in adele iowa is developing new genetics for growing corn in a 12 by 12 inch row pattern and regardless of the crop we're going to see narrower rows to take advantage of new genetics improve weed control with earlier shading and other improvements that will pump up yields. And Fred Bulow, a crop physiologist at the University of Illinois, says this is definitely going to be the trend in corn. We're going to see narrower rows and we're probably going to see twin rows in an in an effort to push up our yields.
0: That concludes this episode of the No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Rhodesian, for helping to make the series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at B-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777. 2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. That's listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. If you haven't already, You can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening and farm
1: ugly.